0: After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out got into the boat But that night, they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. Come and have breakfast. Lord God, we thank you for this word. Spirit of God, author of this word, send it into our hearts now that we might see Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. How real is the resurrection Of Jesus to you? How real is the bodily resurrection of the man Christ Jesus to you? At this moment you're sitting very close to other people in this room right now. You may in fact be touching them right now. Several of you that I can see from this vantage point have children on your laps right now or surely you could reach out your hand if you're not actually touching shoulders with someone. You could reach out your hand right now and touch a person next to you, in front of you, or behind you. You can see them over the past few minutes. You have heard them singing. You no doubt heard their voice when You said together the Nicene Creed and confessed the faith. And for a moment, laying aside the labyrinthine discussions of metaphysical philosophy, the people around you are real. They're flesh and blood. You know they're real. You know them. You have known them for years. You know that the people around you are actually people, and they're real people whom you know and love. How real is the resurrection of Jesus to you? Now of course I've made that a personal question. I've made it a personal question by saying how real is the resurrection of Jesus to you, but there's a question that comes before that, a more objective question, and that question is did Jesus rise from the dead? Is that true? We've just read the stories. We've heard the stories throughout all the way, John 20, most of the way through John 21. We've heard the record of the resurrection. Is it real? Was it bodily? Or was it just something that took place in spirit? Or perhaps it's a metaphor for new life, for new hope, for fresh starts, For new beginnings in the world, did the resurrection really happen and how real is the resurrection to you? The Apostle John, perhaps more than any other writer in the New Testament, labors in his writing on behalf of those who would not be able to see Jesus to touch him, to hear his words in the flesh. He said the words that we saw earlier in the text, the portion that John read for us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He writes for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that we, and keep in mind at at the time that John was writing, This was long after the death and resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Most of the people to whom he was writing at this particular time had likewise not seen, not heard, not touched Jesus. But he's writing to people like them and thus to people like us, inviting us to be able to see through his eyes, through the eyes of the disciples, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, through the working of the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, by grace we receive the eyes of faith by which we are able to see Jesus. We are accustomed to speaking of the resurrection, to singing terrific hymns about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to, on a regular, nearly weekly basis... Confessing the creeds that tell us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've read the scriptures. We've read the very passages that were read before us today. Perhaps many times we have heard the story of the resurrection of Jesus. But for the early followers of Jesus, in the days immediately following after his death, the idea of the resurrection, the appearance of Jesus to them was stunning. It was remarkable that he should be there. It was, dare we say it this way, it was for them surprising. Now whether or not it should have been surprising, that's a different question. But it was for them and what Jesus does in the record that we just have before us, is he step by step reveals himself to them. And our passage begins with that very affirmation, that this is the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of himself as the risen Lord Jesus to the disciples, twice in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again, and then a little bit ways further. And he revealed himself in this way. And it culminates in verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Third time to the disciples. Not third time in general because we've seen other appearances that are actually recorded for us right here. To Mary for example. Third time though as a group. The first resurrection evening when he appears. The second which is where the the time with Thomas is described, and now this one. To a group of disciples, this is the third time that he revealed himself. We may be accustomed to speaking of the resurrection, but they were not. For them, there's uncertainty. There's a lack of clarity in their ability to appreciate that the one who is before them Whether on the shore or in the room with them, there's a difficulty in appreciating the fact that that really is Jesus. And even in this story that we're considering today, there's also this struggle to understand that that's the Lord who is standing there on the shore. There is almost, metaphorically speaking, and who knows, perhaps literally speaking as well, there almost seems to be a mist on the sea, or perhaps just a mist metaphorically speaking upon the eyes of the disciples themselves. And so they struggle with recognition, with perception, up to the point where the man on the shore says, try casting your nets on the other side, try the right side of the boat. I think you'll find some fish there. And of course, what they find is a boatload of fish on the right side and it dawns on John. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine that moment? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Peter, do you remember years ago when he first called us, when, when we were out fishing, in fact, I was mending nets and you were fishing. And the Lord told us to cast out the nets. And there was such a haul of fish that we got that day that the nets themselves began to break that day. Peter, do you remember that? That's the Lord, that's the Lord over there on the beach, hundred yards away, that's the Lord over there. Now, at 100 yards at 100 yards we can imagine that it wasn't completely clear who was on the beach maybe maybe it was just difficult to see at 100 yards whether it was him or not but what about when they get closer verse 12 is an interesting verse jesus said to them come and have breakfast we'll talk about that in a minute now none of the disciples dared ask him who are you they knew it was the Lord. And we read this and we kind of wonder what is exactly happening in that verse. Why is it phrased in exactly that way? If, in fact, they knew it was the Lord, well, why is there any kind of question no one dared to ask? No one dared to ask about his identity, saying, who is this person? Who are you? Was there something different about Jesus? Was there something different in his physical appearance at that time? Perhaps, perhaps a difference in his physical appearance would be consistent with Mary's initial confusion that we read about in John chapter 20. Perhaps it would be consistent with the apparent blindness of the disciples, this is in the Gospel of Luke, who were on the road to Emmaus. Who don't recognize him while he walks along with them, I don't think it would be surprising that the glorified body of Jesus, while being of the same substance as his body before the resurrection, uh, what the, the Westminster Confession calls his selfsame body, I don't think it would be surprising to find that the glorified body of Jesus though the same, is somehow different. That leads us to ask some questions. Is that really him? Could it possibly be him? But I think that D.A. Carson is on the right track when he resolves the tension between recognition and question by saying that they apparently long to ask him, in effect, Is it really you? Is it really you? But they dare not do so. John, in the way this is written, is allowing us, his readers, to be stunned along with the disciples. Is this real? Is it really happening? This was, after all, as we've said, the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to them as a group and they're still stunned. They were stunned the first time and they're still stunned this time. Parentheses. Isn't it somehow encouraging? Encouraging that those who were right there on that day found it to be incredible, astounding, extraordinary, almost unbelievable, almost unbelievable that that man rose from the dead and is standing there. There are some questions about this text. They're great questions, I can't answer any of them. Now okay? here's some questions about this text. Were they doing the right thing or the wrong thing by going out fishing? For those of you who have been here regularly, you'll recall that a couple of weeks ago we asked this question about Saul. Remember we found Saul after his public declaration of king, the next time we see him, he's out in the field, behind the oxen, plowing. And I ask the question, is, is that the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Should he have been preparing a government, preparing an army, preparing to be king, or was it good that he said, okay, I'm, I'm now the anointed king, but I'm gonna work like everybody else works, I'm gonna go out in the field and plow, and the same question could be asked here as well. Were they doing the right thing or the wrong thing by going fishing? should they have been preparing to fulfill the ministry that Jesus had entrusted to them to go out and to be his witnesses? Or were they doing the right thing? I don't know. Why do they listen to someone on the shore telling them where to fish? Why would professional fishermen listen to some guy standing 100 yards away saying, try the other side of the boat? Why the right side of the boat? Don't know. Why did Peter put on a garment to dive into the water? Now, the, 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 the original language there is a little complicated. It, it could be that he, he tucked something in so that it wouldn't be an encumbrance as he was swimming. But in any case, it's hard to say. Why not strip it off so that you can get there more quickly? How could Peter, drag in the net when it seemed to be too much for the others. When Jesus says go and get some fish Peter gets on the boat drags in the net that none of them could get in when there were six of them on the boat. Now I don't know maybe maybe one more hand or one more set of hands was what allowed them to get that in. Maybe Peter is really hyped up and he can just do it at that moment. And what's the significance of the number 153? For about 2,000 years, the church has been proposing various things for the significance of the number 153, and I have no idea what they are. I know I do know what they are, but I don't know if any of them are correct. But questions notwithstanding, John has provided us with wonderful tactile details about this day. We know where they were. We know which portion of the Sea of Galilee they were on, the Sea of Tiberias. We know for the most part which disciples were there. We know that Peter initiated the fishing. We know that it was at night. We know that the others agreed to the plan to go out. We know that Jesus was on the shore. We know that Peter dives in. We know they were about a hundred yards out. We know there was a fire. It was a charcoal fire. There were fish and there were bread that were on the fire. John's description of this allows us to feel the scene. Now I have said before, and I won't bore you with it, I have said before that I have loved fishing since my earliest memories. I can enter into this scene, perhaps as much as any scene in the entire Bible, and imagine that moment. The Holy Spirit says to us through this word, the word of God, the word that John has written to us the resurrection of Jesus is this real? It's as real as the feel of the sand under your feet, of that beach, or a beach that you walk on. It's as real as the feel of the water when Peter dives in or when you dive in to the water. It's as real as the smell of a fire. It's as real as the feel and the taste of food in your mouth. That man on the beach calling, directing, cooking is not an apparition not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He can be seen. He speaks. He can be clung to as Mary clung to him. He can walk along the road with the disciples. He can sit down with those two disciples and break bread. He can eat. The verses that were on the front of your bulletin on the first night of the resurrection. Do you have anything to eat? He can be touched. Thomas, put your fingers here. Put them here. Touch me. He can prepare a fire and food for hungry fishermen. How real is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. How concrete is it? It's that real. That concrete. In fact, John has presented him throughout his gospel as the eternal I am. All that we think of as real emanates from him all of the physicality that we're convinced that's real, that's real, all of that emanates from him. He is the author of the life. He is the one by whom all things were made. He is reality. His resurrection, sorry, I don't mean to be metaphysical here, his resurrection is more real than we are. You're sure that the people around you are real. You're sure that you're sitting on wooden pews. That's how real the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is. And this risen God-man, standing on the shore, shouts across a hundred yards of water, children, friends, guys, probably the best, probably guys, how's the fishing, do you have any fish? Now, I've asked that question a hundred times of people who are fishing. I've been asked that question a hundred times. How's the fishing? And some grumpy, groggy fisherman yells back, no, did you catch any fish? No, I'm fishing all night. No, we haven't caught anything. Try the other side. Now there's a lesson here for us, my friends. And it is plain and it is simple. It is this. If we try to do life on our own, we will come up empty. If you cast your nets into the sea of life, hoping that through your strategic net casting, in the best place, with the best things of life, If you think that that will yield meaning, water will slip through the net, fish will swim around the net, and you will come up empty with nothing. Thomas Akempis, in the Imitation of Christ, addressing Christ in a prayer, says this, oh, come, oh, come, For without Thee, I can never have one joyful day, not one joyful hour. Thou art my joy, and without Thee, my table is empty. But the risen one, the risen one who gives life, gives it abundantly whatever 153 means, it's a lot. I spent a lot of time fishing, never caught 153 fish at a time. Usually use a rod, not a net. But in any case, never caught that many at a time. There is abundance with the Lord. But Jesus not only provides at a distance, he not only keeps them 100 yards off and says, listen, I've got a way for you to get more fish. Here you go. Going to bring an end to this fishing trip and a successful end to it and provide for you. He says these words as they draw close, come and have breakfast. Can you imagine Jesus risen saying to you, come and have breakfast? It is an invitation into his presence for seven fishermen that extends to all humanity. Now we have been speaking, if you've been with us, we've been in the book of 1st Samuel in the mornings, we've been speaking of kingship, we've been talking about kings, Israel's request for a king, king, God's gift of a king, and even on Good Friday we spoke of the centrality of the kingdom and kingship in the death of Christ. Jesus is our king, and he's raised in power and victory as our king. He is bringing in his kingdom, of which we are his joyful subjects. But talk of kingship is sometimes rather lofty talk. It's beyond most of our daily experience, particularly as Americans living in the 21st century. But every one of us, every one of us can appreciate the reality, the deliciousness, parentheses, if you don't like fish, I'm sorry, and parentheses, the deliciousness, the physicality, the comfort of a satisfying breakfast. We all love to hear those words, come and have breakfast. I bet you heard it two hours ago or you said it two hours ago and there was joy, there was anticipation we're ready. Breakfast this morning, hard-boiled eggs, right? Hope you had hard-boiled eggs this morning, it's appropriate. And Pascha, did you have Pascha this morning? No? Mm. Pascha this morning, sorry I'll explain that some other time. The King of Kings, the risen Lord, is not distant and aloof and unapproachable. Afraid, he's not afraid to get his hands dirty or fishy. And he's not afraid of the company of dirty and fishy fishermen. He invites to breakfast. Now that invitation into his presence is said in different ways throughout the pages of God's word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, come buy and eat, or come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Or to fishermen, come, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. The spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come, come have breakfast with Jesus. That is the way to start a new life, start a new day. One hundred yards, and let's talk about it for a moment, for them in reality us as a metaphor, 100 yards, how are you going to get to Jesus? Well, whether you dive in impulsively, close on, close off, whatever, or whether you take the route of saying, well, this man just provided the fish for us. Maybe we should actually bring the boat in with fish to the shore. 100 yards to get to Jesus. What would you cross, what would you do to get to Jesus? We read the story a few moments ago from the beginning of John's Gospel. Two disciples running to the tomb, and the one outran the other, faster than the other. What would it take to get you to run to Jesus, to get to Jesus Christ? For us, that's by faith. Them swimming, sailing, rowing, whatever it was, to get to Jesus. How real is the resurrection of Jesus to you? John knew that most of those to whom he was writing and who would come afterwards, most of all of the world of Christendom would not experience that morning. Seven disciples and Jesus. But he writes, to let us know, to inform us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Come and have breakfast. Lord, allow us to come. Lord, we try to put up obstacles to you. The evil one puts up barriers to keep us from you. We make excuses. We throw up reasons as to why we can't get to you. Thank you for the invitation. Allow us to come unto you, the living one, in whose name we pray. Amen.